very possibly the verse that has impacted my life, my theology, how I think about the world more than any other verse in the Bible is John 1.14. And if you want to open up your Bibles at John 1.14, the NIV, it's on the screen as well. The NIV says it like this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. The message version says it like this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Very few verses have impacted my life more than this one. It's impacted me in a journey of grief from my sister dying and other forms of grief I've walked in in my own life and with you. That what this verse tells us is that God wasn't afraid to step into human flesh, to enter into pain. It's let me know that God's willing to get lower than our lowest low. It depicts an image of God, of one who is not just throwing a rope to you when you're down in the valley, asking for you to take hold of the rope so he can pull you to safety. It's an image of a God who is willing to get down in a valley and down in a pit with you to help lead you to a better place. And it's also been a a motivation for me, inspiration when it comes to mission, that if Jesus is willing to step into a world to love it, to redeem it, to care for it, what part of a neighborhood anywhere through Memphis or Shelby County should we not be willing to enter into to shed light in the darkness and to come along people and to instill dignity? I can't think of a verse more than John 1.14 that inspired my family just over nine years ago to relocate to Binghampton just to see what God is up to. This verse has been an inspiration for me about God's care God's nature, God's heart. The image that often comes to mind and that I've laid in front of you a couple of times over the years is when I think of John 1, 14, is the image of a crossing guard. Up on the screen, this is a crossing guard that's been at Snowden Elementary, Snowden Middle School now for all seven years that we've been at Snowden. This is Miss Shirley. Now, we drop our kids off now. We don't walk across the street. But Miss Shirley, and if you've been down close to McLean and Parkway, Memphis drivers are crazy, right? And Miss Shirley knows how to work this, this whole little area, this crosswalk. Miss Shirley knows how to blow the whistle and yells at people. She gets things done. And she's become a f- friend of ours. We give her gifts sometimes at Christmas and throughout the school year. Uh, there are times Casey and I have gone to pick up the kids and we're holding hands. And she's like, you're so cute, newlyweds. And we're like, we've been married now for 17 years, but whatever. Uh, Shirley, she become a friend. Shirley knows what she's doing. Crossing guards are at their best, not when they're standing on one side of the road and when the street looks clear of just patting kids on the back and wishing them luck as they cross the street, or standing on one side and when it looks clear, blowing a whistle and waving the kids to come to them, but crossing guards are at their best when they are walking with children and with people through the crossroads and intersections of Parkway and McLean or through life. The way God did this whole salvation thing isn't that God came and like tapped human beings on the shoulder and said, hey, that's the way to salvation. Good luck, go get them. Or that God just waving people to come over to him. But that in Jesus, what we learned is that God stepped into human flesh, became just like us, walked in our pain and is now learned and is teaching us to walk with him as we navigate pain and life and joy and excitement and failures. That We're moving through these crossroads and intersections together. So I'm launching a new five-week series today called Infused. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think about the word infuse, infuse, but for most people, you may think about food, like a, 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 a fruit infused water or something like that. 
One thing I love about the word infuse is almost anytime you use the word infuse, it is followed by either the word with or the word into. As if to say, but for example, a new baby infused new life into a family. Or a new employee infuses new enthusiasm into a team. Or the Memphis Tiger football team has helped infuse excitement within a city. It seems to happen, right? Is anybody here excited about the Memphis Tiger football team? Just maybe a few, all right? And some of you don't want to clap about college football at all right now, right? Jesus came to infuse light into darkness. Jesus came to bring light with him throughout the world, to spread love throughout the world. This infusion, when you think infuse, it's about introduction, it's about injection. That God came and injected himself, introduced himself to a world. And what Jesus taught us to do is how to live life with God in this world, not just to learn how to live life with God in another world, but here in this world, Jesus has modeled how to live life with God right here in the here and now. Uh, Advent may be a word that some of you grew up with. It may be a word that you didn't hear much growing up, at least in your church upbringing. Advent is something that started early on in Christianity. It, it actually began as like a 40-day commitment of leading up to baptism and commitment to Jesus. That, that it was a season of preparation of people thinking about the commitment they were making to Jesus. It didn't have, really have anything to do with the Christmas season. The word Advent derives from a word that means coming. And early on when it started and the church started practicing Advent, it was about looking forward to the second coming of Christ. But then also developed into something where we're not just looking forward to something, we're also reflecting back on God coming into the world. So there's this first coming of God into the world as Jesus and the second coming of Jesus into the world that we look forward to. Advent teaches us Something about God's heart that, that that God would come into human flesh as Jesus and walk this earth teaches you something about God, about his character, about his nature, that God chose to come and walk this earth as a human being. That Jesus walked this earth, endured great joy, endured great pain, didn't shy away from pain to help bring salvation and light and life and dignity to a world. It teaches us about God. But I also want to make an argument this morning and over the next few weeks that Advent also prepares us for life with God in this world. It teaches us something about God, and it also prepares us to enter into a life where we live for God. N.T. Wright says it like this, that when God wants to put things to right, he doesn't scramble combat jets. He calls people to love and to do justice. Uh, whenever there's a mess and needs to be cleaned up, we have teams and we have crews who do this. This last week we were driving into Texas and there was a wreck that happened on I-40 in Arkansas on the other side of Little Rock. It was a wreck that was so bad they had to shut down the interstate for like 45 minutes. And it's one of those where you're not upset because you're seeing ambulances pass by and you know people are getting a call over a holiday that nobody wants to get. And after ambulances and police officers went by, then you began to see tow trucks. And then you began to see trucks with gravel. So there are teams being called in who aren't just caring for people. Then you have teams who are going in to help clean up the mess that is there. Gas and oil that's leaked over the road and, and other things that have happened to the road. Their crews are being called in to clean it up. 
And there, there, there's sometimes in the church where our image of Jesus can be like Jesus is, it's like interior design Jesus, that there was a mess in the world and now God came as Jesus and Jesus came to kind of rearrange and get things looking better and once things were a little better, he removed himself from the equation. Or there's military Jesus where there was a lot of evil going on in the world, so Jesus came to declare war upon the world and he came and he won the war and then kind of removed himself. But the image we get through Advent and through the Christmas season and, and John 1, 4, is that God came to live among people. That God didn't come as Jesus, as, a, as a, an adult to step in and then immediately go after his assignment, but to grow up in a world. To learn wisdom in a world. And then to ultimately die for a world. One thing that blows me away about God isn't just that he came, but it's how he did it. And what I want to try to do a little bit today and over the next few weeks is to help us reflect back on what this means for us and also to look forward of how this message of Jesus coming as he did should inspire us as we move into a new year. A year that we don't know what 2020 holds. But what I do know is that there's going to be an election in 2020 And in an election season in America, it can become really easy for Christians to lose their soul for just a little bit. As they sell out to things that may not be eternal. Jesus stepped into a chaotic world and a lot of us see a world right now that's very chaotic. G.K. Chesterton says this, It has never been quite enough to say that God is in his heaven, is in heaven, and all is right with the world since the rumor is that God had left his heavens to set the world right. And Jesus stepped into a world that was, I mean, super chaotic. King Herod was ruling at the time. And I, whenever God shows to like insert Jesus into the world at the time he did, I bet there were hosts of heaven and angels who were looking at God saying, Hey, hey, whoa, 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 King Herod's king. Why don't we wait until there's like a more peace in the world and more stability? Let's not, let's not enter into the world as a baby when King Herod is king. But it's like God said, no, this is exactly when we're going in. If you read the Bible in Matthew chapter 2 in a birth story of Jesus, there's this story of King Herod who feels threatened because of Jesus coming into the world and people are worshiping him as a king, as a baby. That King Herod decided to do something about it. So he, he orders that all the babies in Bethlehem, two years and younger, are, are killed. Now, this is a story that doesn't show up anywhere in history. No historian, no Roman historian or Jewish historian tells the story about this massacre in Bethlehem. We don't know if one baby died or if a bunch of babies died. But even if one, it's a great tragedy. But what you also have are historians who hear the story from Matthew 2 and they know about King Herod and their response is, I would not put that past that man. Sometimes you may see a leader and you may think, well, I mean, they will not stoop that low. But when it came to King Herod doing this, even though it wasn't written down in history books other than Matthew chapter 2, historians who don't even believe in the Bible would say, hey, I mean, that's something, I, that's something King Herod would definitely do. King Herod had two of his brothers executed, brother-in-laws executed. Well, some of you may be thinking, it's in-laws. What big deal? I mean, right? No, <clears throat> he had two brother-in-laws executed. Had a wife executed. Two of his sons were executed. They say that there rarely did a day go by in King Herod's reign where someone didn't die. And it was almost like there were some days where King Herod would just wake up on the wrong side of bed and say, someone needs to die today. 
Like go outside, count to ten, whoever the ten person is, you kill them. When he knew he was about to die, five days before King Herod died, he ordered that he just, he made a list of innocent people. And the edict was, the day I die, these people are to be executed. And they were. Because he wanted the day of his death to be a day of great mourning throughout the entire city. And Jesus was born into that. There are historians who, will, who talk about how in ancient time and early Christianity, that in some places babies weren't given a name until the eighth day of being alive. Because that would give families enough time to decide if they wanted the baby or if they wanted to leave the baby to die. In cases of deformity or if they were the wrong gender, families could leave the babies to die with no consequences. No, no consequences. The law wouldn't come after you. So whenever we think we live in crazy times, you also would have people in the Great Depression or World War II or the Civil War or the first century would raise their hand and say, the world has often been a really crazy place to be. And Jesus stepped into that. Not to try to rearrange how government was done, but to implement a new way of living, a new ethic, a new way of life, a community that was called to live by God's values, doing things God's way. And it worked. There were four main groups, Jewish groups. Now, there were a lot of different Jewish groups, but there were four groups in Judaism. And here's why I want to lay these four in front of you, because all four of these would claim to have a love for God. They would claim to know the scriptures. They would have claimed to have an expectation of a coming Messiah. So they believed in a Messiah coming. And they wanted to engage the world in a certain kind of way. You have a group called the Pharisees, and they show up in the Bible a few times. The Pharisees uh, were all about morality, of trying to live lives of holiness and purity. And because of this, they had a really king in, in their minds was, hey, it's, here's what is right, and here's what is wrong. And, and their thinking was, if we can just help people behave better, then the Messiah will come because the Messiah will want to come to something that is cleaned up and looks good. So it was this major push for righteousness, which I don't think any of us would disagree with righteousness, but the Pharisees came to be known as a group that was super judgmental. You also had a group called the Essenes. The Essenes claimed to have a love for God. They knew the scriptures. They were respecting the Messiah. And it changed how they engaged the world too. And the way Essenes engaged the world is they were like, man, we're just done with the government, with the, rules, the rulers of the world. It's not working for us. And we're going to separate from them. So the Essenes go out into the wilderness to form their own community, committed to righteousness and committed to God. But they also committed themselves to chastity so it's hard to have a next generation or a movement that continues if you commit to those kind of things the Essenes removed themselves from everything and they formed a community that looked like them had values like them and Jesus was also born into a world where there was a group called the Zealots. And the way the Zealots went about life was they were so fed up with the government that this would be a group that would have like protests and picket signs, but the Zealots didn't choose to do it the way we've seen this done in the world. The way the Zealots did is that they formed like this militia group. They wanted to slowly take out the powers of Rome. They wanted to do something about it. And they thought if we do it this way, the Messiah is going to come as a, like a military leader and a military hero. He would want to come and be a part of something like this. The zealots didn't make it very long because if you start doing stuff to take out Rome, Rome's going to take out you. 
And then you also have the Herodians. The Herodian, Herodians would claim to have a love for God and a, they cared about Scripture. The Herodians wanted to engage the world. And the Herodians' way of doing this was just to assimilate. We're going to love God. We'll read the Bible, but we're going to fully give in and surrender to the powers of the world too. It'll make life easier. You just follow the ways of King Herod. All four of these groups had a way of thinking about Scripture, of thinking about God, of interacting with the world in a certain way. And all four of these groups also became opponents to the life and ministry of Jesus. Because their way of seeing things didn't leave any room for seeing a new movement of God coming into the world. So what happened to many of them is they had their belief in God, but their passions and allegiances didn't align with those beliefs. And my fear and concern for Christians in America today, especially in election seasons, is that we hold on to our belief in God, but our passion, our time, our allegiance, conversations we find ourselves in don't align with those beliefs. And we may increase church attendance and may pray a little more to make us feel a little bit more righteous, but the passion and what we care for doesn't align with the beliefs that we surrender to in our baptisms. So what you have are people who may care so deeply in 2020 about getting people to vote a certain way, but they will not spend a single moment of their life trying to introduce a lost person to Jesus. And Jesus came to implement something brand new. You have zero chance of trying to convince me that if Jesus were alive today, he would be a Republican. And you have zero chance of trying to convince me if Jesus were alive today, he would be a Democrat. Because you have zero chance to convince me if Jesus were alive today, he would be an American. Where those would be his two main options. If Jesus were alive today, walking on this earth, I think he would do the same thing he did 2,000 years ago. And he would go around teaching and preaching and helping people understand the kingdom of God. Where people fully surrender and give your ultimate allegiance to God's values and God's ways and God's desires. Care about the world. Care about elections and politics. Care about these things. Stand for things. But know that your ultimate allegiance is for the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God alone. Uh, Jonathan Merritt wrote a book recently called um, Learning to Speak God from Scratch. It's about language we use when it comes to faith and spirituality. And in one chapter in the book, he refers to a study that was done at Baylor University Institute of uh, Faith and Religion, or Religion and Spirituality. And what they found was, and they, they surveyed, and this was coming from Baylor, it was a massive study. Thousands of people were involved in this. And they divided up these categories and they were like this, that there's an author a way people think about God is an authoritarian God, where the authoritarian God, if you go to the, the next slide, I think I have a few of these up there, is a high level of anger and a high level of engagement. So God is this authority figure who's quick to like throw arrows and is super engaged in the world. And then you have a view of God that was the critical God. And the critical God was high level of anger, but a low level of engagement. And then there was the distant God, who had a low level of anger, 
uh, in a high, uh, low level of engagement. And then the last one was a benevolent God. A low level of anger and a high level of engagement. And you look at those right now in the survey, over 50% of people said their view of God is the authoritarian view of God. Over 50%. Now, there are places in the Bible where God does get angry. But there are also more places in the Bible that talk about how God is a God who is slow to anger. But what we see in Jesus is a God who is a high level of involvement, high level of engagement, ushering in a new way of life, inviting people into that life to surrender everything you have to what Jesus is bringing into the world. And this is the call of the church. I want to ask elders and prayer leaders if you will go around the room to receive people today. And for those in this room who have never surrendered a life to Jesus before, you have leaders who are going throughout the room, and I would love to talk about, you, about what it means to choose Jesus and to follow Jesus with your life. And for the others in the room, the call of God for you is daily in your life. Above all things, choose Jesus. He's the way. He's the truth. Choose Jesus. We have people throughout the room to receive you for prayer. And anything else we can bring in front, you want to bring in front of the church. We want to honor that. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.